This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The word of the Lord. So we continue in our series in Second Peter, and uh, we have just one more Sunday after this to finish. We're on track. And today we're looking at a specific false teaching that Peter needs to address, and we need to address as well. You remember that in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, there was a lot of, lot of conversation about false teachers and what they're like, but not so much specifically about false teachings. But here we find a very specific false teaching, namely the denial of Christ's return. So we're going to deal with that, and our outline is pretty simple. We have three questions to answer this morning. Number one, what should we believe about the second coming? Number two, why should we believe it? And number three, how should we live according to what we believe? So what should we believe? why we should believe it, and then, of course, how we should live according to what we believe. So in verses 1 and 2, Peter once again highlights the importance of being established in the truth of the Bible, knowing what it says and trusting what it says. He reminds us to remember what is taught both in the Old Testament by the Holy Prophets and in the New Testament by the Apostles recorded the words of Jesus himself. And then verse 3 gives us one important reason for knowing and trusting the Bible, because there are people who follow their own sinful desires and deny that what the Bible teaches. So Peter calls them scoffers. That's a good biblical word for false teachers. They mock the truth. They don't just deny it, they mock it. They make fun of biblical teachings. They belittle those who trust the Bible 
and they characterize Bible believers as silly or out of touch with reality or unsophisticated, naive, simple, closed-minded. Their attitude is snark and condescension. Now, this is very early in the sermon, and I am already convicted by this, so I'll share my conviction with you, and maybe that applies to you as well. I know that in my generation and in my circles, it is common to be ironic and snarky. In fact, the worst thing that, that we can do, it seems, is to appear earnest about anything. And I know that I have crossed that line many times. It's one thing to joke and have fun and laugh about things, but there is a line there where you start making fun of things that are real and true and good and beautiful. <clears throat> And I pray that the Lord will help me grow in that because I don't want to be a scoffer. I don't want to be somebody that looks at something that is real, someone's faith, someone's conviction, something that is true, and belittles it, makes fun of it as something that is pitiable, something that is just, you know, it's just too naive, it's just not nuanced and sophisticated enough for me. So I'll bring that before you as my first conviction from this text, and I hope that it applies to someone else as well. This is a good word, scoffers. Scoffers. And these scoffers Peter, that Peter has encountered, they deny specifically that Christ will return. Look at verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? That's what they're saying. Where, where is the promise of His coming? Now, you can tell even in that question that there is mockery here, right? They're scoffing at that. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? We've been waiting, and He has not kept His promise. said He was going to return, and He isn't here yet. In fact, they say that ever since the first promises were made by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I think that's what He means by the fathers, Nothing has changed, they're saying. The world has been the same since creation. There's no goal to this history. There's no climax to anything. It's just, it just keeps going and going the way it's always been. God has not intervened, and we shouldn't expect Him to intervene. Well, that's the basic heresy. Jesus is not coming back. Nothing's going to change. It's just the way it is. It's just accepted the way it is. Now, it's understandable to some degree, right? I mean, we live, we're almost 2,000 years removed from Jesus making those promises, from the ascension of Jesus, and He has not come back yet. So it's a fair question. If you ask that question in earnest, it's a fair question. Where is the promise of His coming? I think it's actually normal for a believer to long for his return and wonder why he hasn't come back yet. I don't think it's wrong to feel that, to pray that, to ask that question. In fact, one of the most common prayers in the Bible is, how long, O Lord? Right? All over the Scriptures, the believers are crying out, how long, O Lord? The expectation is there for the Lord to come and intervene and and, and in our understanding, in our experience, he often delays that. He's not there when we want him to be there. But there's a big difference between agonizing over the seeming delay of Christ's coming 
and rejecting it altogether. And the difference is faith. Because we can, in faith, pray, how long must we wait for your coming, O Lord? But we cannot, in faith, conclude that he will not keep his word and won't come at all. And so Peter is addressing the unbelief of the scoffers. But in the process, he's also strengthening our faith. Those who are waiting, those who are longing for his return and are praying these prayers, how long, O Lord, he's also speaking to us. And he's rejecting this, this faithless approach, this snarky, scoffing approach, where is the promise of your coming, Lord? But he's also helping and strengthening those believers who are genuinely looking for his coming and we are struggling because we want him to return now but he has delayed in our estimation of course so what's the right belief about the second coming of christ now we need to understand that in this passage peter has not given us a full-fledged fledged kind of a you know exhaustive uh, a doctrine of the second coming. No, he's dealing with very specific issues. In fact, he's primarily concerned with refuting what these scoffers are saying. And we know from chapter 2 that these people want to sin. And so they reject that there will be judgment in Christ's return because they want to sin. So Peter's focus here is mostly on the final judgment. That, that's his primary concern. Because the scoffers love the world and they follow their own sinful passions. And we remember from the previous chapter that Peter has exposed their greed, their sensuality, their abuse of authority. Those are the issues. That's what they want to do. And because they want to do that, they have to justify it and they have to reject the possibility of divine judgment. Otherwise, how can you do that if judgment is coming? So if you still want to do it, you do it and you say there is no judgment. He's not coming back. So Peter's focus is on the final judgment of the world because they love the world and things of the world. And so Peter is saying, but this world will be judged. It will be destroyed. His point is that whatever the scoffers gain in this world will be burnt up and useless in the next when the Lord returns. So Peter tells us that Christ will, in fact, return. So whatever else you believe about the second coming, you must believe that he will return, that he, this person, will return because he promised to return. Peter calls the day of Christ's return the day of the Lord, just like the Old Testament prophets called it, and just like actually Peter himself, when he preached at Pentecost, he called that the day of the Lord too, quoting Joel. So this is biblical language, Peter's own language. Now look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now I, I have to restrain myself and not to get into all the possible interpretations of this verse because there are many. Okay? But I will just say that I think the main point here is that on the day of the Lord, the protective layer of the world will be burnt off and all sin will be exposed to God's judgment. 
I think that's the imagery here, that the main, the thrust of this passage, as Peter puts it, is if you love the world and you've committed yourself to the world and you've been sinning and you're saying there is no judgment, Peter says, no, there will be a time when God's judgment will come and burn off all that protects you from Him and everything will be exposed. The earth will be exposed to God's evaluation. And so the earth will be laid bare before God. I think that's the point. Then verse 12 says that the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But it's interesting that the world will not be totally destroyed because in verse 13 we read about the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is destruction coming? Yes. But is destruction absolute? No. God actually is not planning to destroy everything He's created. So how do we reconcile these, these two ideas that heaven and earth will be destroyed, and yet new heaven and a new earth will come? Now, biblically, there is both continuity and discontinuity between the, this world and the next world. So on the one hand, the new world will be a lot like the old world. After all, it's still heaven and earth. These are ideas that we understand and we live here, so it'll still be heaven and still be earth. Physical and spiritual will still be in the next world. On the other hand, the new world will be different from the old world because the old world, our world, is dominated by sin, but the new world will be completely free from sin and righteousness will dwell there. It'll be the home of righteousness. Now, during Advent of 2021, so two years ago, uh, we preached a series of sermons in the last two chapters of Revelation, and I've dealt extensively with this idea of what will this new creation be? So if you forgot, if you missed it, please, there are lots more information on this doctrine, and you can easily access those sermons and read them or, or hear them again. But I will summarize in one sentence pretty much most of what I said, okay? Maybe it wasn't as extensive as I thought, if I could just <laughs> give you a sentence. But this is what we concluded from our exposition of the last two chapters of Revelation, is that all good things from this world will be in the next, only better. And all bad things from this world will never make it to the next. So all good things in this world will be in the next. God will not destroy anything good. In fact, He will make it better. He'll perfect it. But all bad things from this world will never make it into the next. So as you live here and now, and you appreciate things that are God's gifts, they're good things, they're God-made things, God-given things, we rejoice because we'll have that in eternity. And so there's value in enjoyment. There's value in living life under God's care and enjoying it and using His gifts. On the other hand, everything that is bad and evil and decaying and sinful that we struggle with here, it just won't be there. And so things will be perfectly good. No mixture, nothing mixed in, sinful, and nothing bad will remain. 
So what should we believe about the second coming of Christ? Well, he will come, and when he comes, he will judge the world. The fire of his judgment will burn off sin and evil and will remake the world into a place of righteousness. All the ungodly will be punished. This is really important. And he talked a lot about it in chapter 2. There is judgment coming for those who reject Christ. And he emphasizes it again here. But all the followers of Jesus will be with the Lord forever in the new heaven and new earth. Now, since Peter's emphasis is on judgment here, I'd like to address this topic. The scoffers of Peter's time denied that there will be judgment. Now, in Peter's view, they wanted to sin and not be held accountable. They were led astray by their sinful passions, and that's why they denied that there is moral accountability. That was the main reason for their rejection of the Bible's teaching on the, on the return of Christ, according to Peter. Now, this feels very familiar because that is a very common understanding of our day. Many people today reject the idea of the day of judgment. And they mock and scoff at those who believe that there will be, there will be a divine reckoning. Even many otherwise Orthodox Christians, people in evangelical churches, struggle with the idea of hell. Like one of the one of the biggest objections to Christianity, even among Christians, is that I cannot believe in hell. I just can't accept this idea of God's judgment. Now the question is why? Why do so many of us struggle with this idea of divine judgment? I'd like to suggest to you that our problem is not actually with judgment as such. In fact, a good case can be made that we are one of the more judgmental cultures in human history. I don't think we have a problem with judgment. Half the country judges the other half, <laughs> right, and wishes that they would just simply go away, and that same sentiment is returned with vigor from the other side. I mean, can we really say that it's hard for us to accept the idea of judgment? We seem to be at home with fiery judgment and consuming wrath. When a person is accidentally overcharged at the grocery store, we're ready to burn it down, right? <laughs> the only way to make it right, everybody has to be fired here, right? New management has to come in. When a package is delivered a day late, we feel oppressed. We look for a human rights lawyer, right? When a flight is delayed, I don't even need to say anything, but I had a good line, so I'll say it. We cry out for justice as if, as if we've been thrown into a Turkish prison. I mean, that's the level of injustice that rises in our hearts. I don't think we have a problem with judgment. We have a problem with not being the judge. I think that's the problem. It's not that we don't understand that things need to be set right, that there is injustice and evil in the world. No, I think we get that. And I think we get that there has to be a reckoning. The problem is we want to be the person who does the reckoning. 
Who decides what's right and what's wrong? Who, who says that this needs to be punished and this is okay? And so it's an idea of another judge, somebody with greater moral authority and with more rigid law that looks at our life that is a problem for us. Now imagine this. If, if your employer just basically stopped paying you and expected you to show up at work every day. I mean, imagine the level of, of, of judgment that rises in your heart, right? You would say, this is so unfair. It's, in, it's unjust. You can't do that. And you'd be right, of course. That's right. But imagine all that we owe to God that we don't give to Him. And day after day, rejecting Him and saying, I will not do what I'm supposed to do for you. I will not treat you as you deserve to be treated. The level of that offense is, is infinite. So why should we be surprised that that person, that divine judge who actually is objective in his judgment, who sees everything we have done and thought and planned and, and didn't get to do but wanted to, he sees all of that. Why would we be surprised that he would not judge people who have offended him and wronged him? The problem isn't the, the judgment. The problem is the judge. We don't want anybody else to judge us. We want to be the judge. And I think that's why, largely, why so many refuse to believe in the second coming of Christ that will come when he comes to judge the living and the dead, which is one of the main points of the Christian faith, that he will come to judge the living and the dead, that nobody will escape moral accountability before God. Okay, why should we believe it? I told you what we should believe. That's from the Bible. This is what Peter is saying. But why should we believe it? And he gives us four reasons, and I'll run through them fairly quickly. He gives us four reasons to, as to why we should believe that Jesus is still coming back. So number one, he argues from God's history, from God's past activity. In verses 5 through 7, the apostle reminds us that the Lord already judged the world once before. He cleansed the world of sin in the flood and rescued Noah and his family. The Lord already did that once before. This is one of Peter's favorite passages in Scripture. He seems to go back to the flood any chance he gets. In the short epistles that we have from him, I think this is the third time he's already touched on it. Because it's such a big example to him of God's judgment and God's grace. And so he says, well, you don't believe that the world can change? You don't believe that God intervenes? Well, look at the flood. He intervened. He judged the world. He cleansed the world once. He's going to do it again. He did it with water then. He's going to do it with fire by the same word. The same word that created the world and judged the world in the flood, that same word is going to come true. And by God's authority, he will cleanse the world with fire once again. Now, secondly, Peter argues from God's nature. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We, he's quoting Psalm 90, paraphrasing it, but we, we cannot apply our idea of time to God. 
He's saying, you're waiting for his return and you're thinking he's delayed, but you're using a human understanding of time and your own understanding of time and you're applying it to God. He's on a different schedule altogether. Even among ourselves, we have very different perspectives on the meaning of soon, as I found out in my own marriage. My soon is very different from Jillian's soon. <laughs> we have different ideas of late, right? When somebody says, I'm sorry, I'm late, that could be two minutes, right? Or it could be two hours. And it depends on the person. It depends on their experience. It depends on their culture. So even among human beings, our understanding of time differs pretty widely. Now compare that to God's understanding. And so Peter's right to say, for him, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. He doesn't think the same way we think. Now Kevin DeYoung uses this example of, of different ideas of time. He says, imagine if the parents come to their children and they're saying, we are going on vacation to Disney World. Children start packing right away, right? For them, it's okay, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> let's not wait. We're ready to go right now. For the parents, they're probably thinking, okay, that means we have to budget so that next summer, right, maybe we can go. Very different ideas of time. And so Peter says, don't make the mistake of applying your idea of time to God. Well, better yet, don't apply any human measurements to God. Don't think you can measure His grace. For example, your grace, my grace, is so far from what God understands by grace. Don't think you can measure His forgiveness. I mean, even the most forgiven people, right? They're, they're not anywhere close to God's ability to forgive. Don't think you can figure out his wisdom and say, well, I know exactly why the Lord did this now. You're just using human measurements for God. Don't think you can rightly measure his justice either. He decides what's just, and it's perfect. Our ideas are always, always twisted, always skewed. So Peter argues that we should believe that Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead because he's done it before in the flood, that's from his history, and in his nature he sees time differently. And then his third argument is from God's character in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason the Lord has not come back yet is because he's patiently waiting for people to turn from their sins and embrace him by faith. He's patient even with scoffers because he does not wish that any should perish. What an encouraging scripture. What an encouraging scripture that the Lord is delaying, so to speak, his return because he wants us to repent. He wants us to come to him. He doesn't want to leave us out He's waiting for us to trust him. He's not slow in his judgment. He's slow to anger. He's patient. Again, we can't use our own measurement of patience. We may think he's too patient. 
We may think he's not patient enough. But he says he is patient. Jen Pollock Michelle, in her new book, In Good Time, which actually we'll be using, maybe, probably, in our Sunday school class during Lent. But she reflects on our addiction to efficiency and, and our not wanting to spend too much time on anything and waste time. And then she writes, this isn't God's way, of course. He's not the huffing father at the wheel of the car parked in front of the school and wondering what's keeping his kids so long after practice. That's our experience, but it isn't God's experience. In the Bible, God is not caught tapping his foot or checking his watch, bemoaning how long it takes his people to move. Sure, there's that moment in the book of Jonah when God hurls howling winds and a hungry whale to steer the prophet back on course. But generally, God has a reputation for patience. I am slow to anger, God announced to Israel. I have no reason to panic. And fourth, the argument for why we should believe in the Lord's return and still wait for Him to return is made out of God's promise, actually Christ's own promise. Verse 10 is an allusion to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. So I'll read Matthew 24, 42 through 44. Jesus is speaking and He says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus himself promised that his return will be surprising. So if you're saying he must have already returned by now, right? And thus, he's not coming. That, that is not what he said. He said that whenever he comes, it will be unexpected. It will be surprising. Like a thief, like a robber breaking into, like a burglar breaking into your house at night. Unexpected, right? And so then the implication is that we must be ready. We must be waiting for him to return. Because we do not know when exactly he will return. So those are the five arguments of Peter's that he says the scoffers deny the, the doctrine of Christ's return, but you should believe it because it actually is in accordance with God's history. He's done that before. It's in accordance with his nature. That's how he sees time. We can't measure him by our own human measurements. It's in accordance with his character. He's patient and loving and slow to anger. And it's in accordance with what Jesus actually said when he promised his return. And now our final question. How should we live in light of this belief in Christ's return? I'm not just trying to convince you to believe it and mark it off and say, yeah, that's part of the creed. I'm in. I'm actually trying to move you to live according to what you believe. So what kind of people should we be? Or as Peter puts it in verse 11, what sort of people ought we to be? What sort of people? What kind of people? What, how would we need to be described if we are to actually put this doctrine into practice? Because eschatological ideas always have moral imperatives. All these doctrines in Scripture are never detached from our life. And so Peter says, you ought to be a different kind of person because you believe this. Well, what kind of person? 
Well, number one, we ought to be holy and godly people, verse 11. We ought to live lives of holiness and godliness. Now, knowing all that we know about the second coming, knowing that everything will be burnt up at judgment, and all that will remain in eternity will be what's supposed to be there, right? If we know what will burn up and what will remain, if we know that, should we then not commit ourselves to holiness and godliness, pursuing things that will remain? Now, the scoffers dedicated their lives to sinning. But Peter says sin will be punished and destroyed. It'll be gone. There'll be no sin in the new heaven and earth, but there will be righteousness. So commit yourself to righteousness. Commit yourself to holiness and godliness. If you are not at home with righteousness now, why should you look forward to new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? The reason why many Christians are not excited about the Lord's return is because they don't like righteousness. And that's what we'll have. But if you live now a godly and holy life, the prospect of getting more of that and less of the sin that you're fighting is very, very appealing. Let me give you this illustration. A man went to a tropical bird show were you expecting that twist in the sermon? <laughs> it's always a good tropical bird show illustration somewhere. <laughs> a man went to a tropical bird show at a giant convention center. Now, this man was a collector of bird fe feathers. So he was very excited. He's like, there's going to be all sorts of birds there. Maybe every imaginable bird is going to be there. So I can get all the feathers I need to make my complete collection complete. So all day he walked around picking up feathers. By the end of the day, he held a big bundle in his arms, left the convention center, walked to his car. But when he was fiddling with his keys, trying to, trying to hold on to the feathers, trying to open the door, a big gust of wind came. All the feathers flew everywhere across the parking lot. Don't spend your life on something like that. Don't spend your life on picking up feathers only for them to be burnt off at the coming of Christ. Invest in things that will remain, godliness and holiness. And if you think I mean just read your Bible more and pray and go to church, that is not all I mean. I mean that for sure, but I mean more than that. I mean meaningful work. I mean investment in beauty. I mean relationships. Because all those things will be there. So if you do those things now for Christ's sake, and you live for his glory now, and you live in righteousness now, you will enjoy all of that forever. Now secondly, we ought to be waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now this has caused many problems to many Christians. If the Lord has fixed the date of his return, though we don't know it, right? We know, Jesus said, we don't know. The Father knows, we don't know. But that date is fixed by his own authority. How can I speed it up? How can I hasten it? How can I do something that will bring it closer? But that's what Peter seems to be saying here. Well, we cannot know or change the mind of God. But in our waiting, 
I think the logic is clear. If the Lord has not returned yet because he's patiently waiting for people to repent, the more we repent, the closer will his coming be. Do you see the logic here? We are not talking about the eternal decrees of God. We're talking about a very subjective experience of waiting. We're saying that if I do what hinders the Lord's return, then I am contributing. I am hastening it. I am welcoming it. I'm anticipating it. Now, of course, this includes unbelievers. If you are not a follower of Jesus, hasten His coming by putting your trust in Him today. Did you know that the Lord has not come back last night so that you can repent this morning? The reason the Lord isn't here today is because He wanted to give you an extra day to repent. So if you're not a believer, this is, this is your time. This is a divinely given time for you to repent and embrace Jesus. Because judgment is real, and all sin, including yours, must be punished by the only person qualified to judge you. And that's not you, that's God. And at some point, everything will be laid bare in your life, and God will make his judgment on your life. How do you think you will fare under God's scrutiny? Not your cousin's scrutiny, but under God's scrutiny. God who knows everything. That judgment is real. This is what God is going to do. The question is, and really the only question, the most important question for you today, if you're not a believer, is, will you trust that your judgment, the judgment that you deserve, happened to Jesus on the cross, or will you wait for your judgment to be executed by Jesus when he returns? That's the choice. I'm either going to accept that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for me. And all the judgment that has rightly come into me was placed on him in my place. And thus I am free from the judgment. I'm free from condemnation. So all that I'm looking forward to is new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. Or the other option is I'm going to wait for Jesus to come back and it might take him another day or two or a thousand years. But when he returns, he will judge me. And nothing will be hidden from him. And whatever I deserve, which is infinite punishment, will be rightly given to me by the same Christ. Do not delay your response to the gospel. Romans 2, verses 4 and 5 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The reason the Lord is patient with you is not to give you more time to think or sin or reject Him. The reason He's patient with you is so you would come to Him and believe and embrace Him. It also speaks to believers because we too can hasten the day of the Lord by repentance and pursuit of holiness. Same logic. 
if the Lord is holding off to come back because he wants more righteousness, he wants more people to come to him, he wants more holy lives, then I, by pursuing holiness in my life, I will hasten him. I am anticipating him when I live in a righteous way. I call it active waiting. You heard of active listening, right? Listening isn't tuning out and waiting for the person to be done talking, right? No, listening is actually interacting with the person through listening, actively engaging. And in the same way, we are not just passively waiting for the Lord to come back. We're waiting actively. We're actively preparing. Now look at verse 14. I'm reaching into the next section here. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, for these things to happen that Peter just described, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent to address sin in your life now, he says. Both personal sin, spot and blemish, but corporate sin, peace, relationships, conflict, disunity, oppression, justice, all that is included here. Be diligent to address sin in your life. Don't harbor it. Don't ignore it. Repent. Think about how he will find you when he comes. What will he see when he comes in you? So as we come to the Lord's table, the call of this passage is clear. It's repentance. If you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus, Come to the Lord today and accept that he was judged for you so you can be welcomed into the new heaven and new earth to live with God forever. Is he your righteousness? Or are you going to bring your own righteousness to him in judgment? Does he dwell in your heart today just as righteousness will dwell in new heaven and new earth? If you are a Christian... This is an opportunity for you to bring your life in line with your beliefs. Consider where holiness and godliness are lacking in your life and be diligent to be found by Jesus without spot or blemish and at peace when he returns.